This is Omo. about fakes. So this story is important because every third violin has a Stradivarius label in it. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen hundreds, maybe thousands of them. Every violin shop in the world gets regular calls about how someone found their uncle's Strad in a closet. Oh, it's a real Stradivari. No, it's when yeah. the Germans were working for Stradivari. Yeah. Yeah. Who was definitely alive in the 1800s. Yes. Totally. Yes. So we, we violin shop people, we have to put on the armor of assuming whatever you've brought in, it's probably not as special as you think it is. There are exceptions, and they, mm-hmm. it is nice when there are exceptions. Mm-hmm. There was a, a lady so who nice. came in in a, a Minnie Mouse tracksuit in Omaha with a Roman instrument from the 18th century, which uh, ended up going for about $60,000 that her father had won in a game of craps in the 70s. I love that. <laughs> now, that's that's amazing because it's the, the exception to the rule Yeah, where yeah. most of what we see... It was not crafted with love, and it will never bring anyone joy. Oh, yeah, that's my theory. Sorry, I, I've I've seen too many bad ones today. I'm in a mood. Okay, again, this story is important because there are people in this field who are dependent on you, the customer, of not knowing the value of what is in your hand. Very true. And there's a reason why. New customers who come into my shop will openly admit that they can't tell the difference in an instrument. Yeah. I mean, my my grandpa can listen to a car going by and know what year it was made and by what company. And it becomes the same way with instruments. You have to be completely immersed in them for mm-hmm. dozens of years before your your sensibilities are sharp enough. Yeah. And often, the for, for my clientele... It is usually the kid who has been playing in their school for a few years that they're buying their first nice instrument. They can tell the difference. They mm. can tell that it projects and that it's sweeter and that the fit, the way it fits in their hands is just perfect. Mm-hmm. And part of my job is explaining to the parent, like, this is what they're looking for. And, you know, convincing them of why they need to spend more money. Why why the things that feel better to the kid correlate with them laying out a little more cash, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to not feel like a a car salesman sometimes, you know, to feel like you're you're trying to put one over on people just by the role they cast you in there. It's exactly my point. There's people, I hope that I am the person, I try to be the person who helps the customer understand without forcing it on them, but there's plenty in this field who are willing to make a fat profit off of you not knowing. Mm-hmm. And it's been happening from the start. Oh, I, yeah. could, I could choose from so many individuals <laughs> in history 
And and Chris, I'm sure if we really wanted to, we could choose from some current makers as well. Let's not though, because not. Uh, yeah, I don't really have getting sued money. You know, let's wait until they've passed. Okay, and then we'll talk we'll smack tell on everything. So today we are focusing on the Valder brothers. The Valder brothers. And if we're going to be technical, the Valder family. Uh-huh. There's William the father, Charles and Alfred are the sons, but. We hear it often, Baller Brothers. So Fantastically that's... talented men. Yes. Oh, one, played, one played violin. The other played viola. The third played cello. So they got this great trio going on. Just like uh, the trio of Antonio and his two sons. Ooh, but I see what no... you did there. Yeah, but there's no Omobono to screw it up. <laughs> Are we sure that both sons were non-screw ups just because their instruments rock? Well, none of them got screwed in the family heritage. That is that is a, that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they worked for the Hart family uh-huh. in the late 1800s in London. And this family, you know, as far as being above board, they're they're the above board kind. Mm-hmm. So they're while the, this family is working for George Hart they start making copies of famous violins. Yeah. Here's a Del Jesu. Here's a Galliano. And of course, several Strads. And over oh, the I years, have... yes? Um, I'm sorry, I, I, okay. I'm just excited. I've, I've seen okay. so many Voller Brothers Amadis, so many what Voller you... Brothers Gallianos there. Tell me what you've uh, seen. <laughs> I've seen beautiful, beautiful violins where the maple especially, it is really hard to call it fake, to call mm-hmm. it false, to call it a copy. Um, my good friend Alan Peterman uh, years ago pointed out to me, you can't fool Spruce. It's harder to get deep enough down into Spruce, but um, the Fowler Brothers instruments are they are remarkable fakes. I was just looking at, we're going to have our, our guest Ben Hebert come uh, and talk to us in just a minute. And he's got some pictures up on his website of like a original Strad. It might be the Balfour Strad. I, uh-huh. I, my memory is failing. And the backside of it. And then the, uh, the one that the Fowler's copied. Yeah. And this, that, that nice uh, like maple grain line on the back it was just this mm-hmm. perfect slant and the lines you know like like the the light and dark lines that you see in maple they're the just so yeah the the they're they're just so perfectly in line and you and, have to really 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 look to see any difference in the two and how do you find a piece of wood that that that's that perfect that's remarkable yeah i mean i can I can and have sat and intended to model after and done wood selection. But I mean, until we get to uh, Jeff Phillips and Antoine Nedelec and the bench copying they did, um, you know, in, in our lifetimes, it's like they found the exact same brick of tree somewhere at the exact same cut and just transposed it over. Yeah. Okay. They so who are the, who are the two? Model. Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. The two people you just mentioned. Oh, that's those are my uh, 
my first heroes, perhaps, because of my schooling at the VMSA in Salt Lake City, the Violin Making School of America. Okay. Um, I sat at Jeff Phillips' bench at Peter Preer and Sons the two days a week that he didn't come in while I was a student. And Antoine Nedelec, uh, way to go, Antoine, has just been uh, named the director at the Chicago School of Violin Making. And they are multiple gold medal winning makers. Uh, Antoine judged in the Violin Society of America International Competition, which just finished in Cleveland a few weeks ago as we're recording this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, they they do fine antiquing work um, at a level which is unheard of after this period of British fakes, I would Mm -hmm. say. there really weren't people doing the same stuff until you get to, you know, the the 1990s on. Uh, I would say Greg Alf and Joe Curtin okay. started it out. And now we have people like Jeff and Antoine and, oh, geez, uh, Stefan okay. von Baer. I'm, yeah, just I want to name people. Sorry, Rosie, so cut me that's off. That's okay. You name. You name Philip them all. Philip He's the man. Every one of them. So you're talking about modern people that are alive today that are doing incredible, incredible work. And doing it not to pass them off as the real deal, but just to brush their fingernails on their sweet, sweet jackets they're wearing and going, oh, yeah, we can do that. Should I leave a space for the 12 people that you're going to be upset that you forgot about? Or you can totally just just cut me talking (laughs) about them out completely, (laughs) either or. Okay. Are we going to introduce each other, Rosie DeLoach? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, everyone, you're listening to Omo. Thank you. Omo. Thank you for tuning in. This is over here, Chris Jacoby. Hi. Yeah. And you're coming to us from uh, Tacoma Park, Washington. Tacoma Wait, Park, Tacoma Park, Park Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and know Rosie where Deloach, outside of Dallas, Texas. Yes, that's you one want- way to pronounce it. <laughs> You want me to kill that? Sorry. No. Uh, it's uh, it's good to talk to you. I'm excited yeah. to talk about the Voller Brothers. Thank you. I'm enjoying this as well. <laughs> God, I'm so nerdy. Uh, where were we? Okay, we were talking about the these makers, the Vollers, and then you said a bunch of really cool, awesome people today that I hope I get to shake the hand of someday because I don't oh, yeah. know about them. This is yeah. all new and fun and interesting to me. Uh, so, okay. So they are making all these copies of really well-known hundred-year-old makers. and that they're in, seeing at the Hart family's place, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're at the Hearts in London. Foggy London town. Yes. And so first, first of all, their game is all about making exact copies. Mm-hmm. Although it's hard to fake things making things look antique yeah i i I know that it's very popular to antique a violin today but there's there's new antiquing and then there's genuine wear Mm -hmm. uh, which i'm sure you could say like 10 things about well i'll (laughs) say one thing is that uh the people that are the best at it will look you in the eye and say the only way to get there is to kick the instrument's ass and then restore it repeatedly. <laughs> and that that's the rough truth. You can't just wipe a bit of varnish off, uh-huh. put some asphaltum in there and then spray finish it. 
which is 90% of what you see in antiquing, you have to restore the instrument's finish and its woodwork over and over again in order for it to be convincing. There's the uh, pretend falling apart and the real falling apart. Yeah. And there are makers out there, Rosie, that actually break the top everywhere where it's broken. No. And then (laughs) glue it with dirt in the crack. Then put the mustache that Viome and the French makers of that time period put over the instrument in black and then remove it, remove the dirt from the crack. Whoa, Um, when you say, what do you, what do you mean by mustache? Well, I mustache you if no, no, that's not going to play well. Um, (laughs) Right below where the fingerboard comes down toward the F holes on the top of an instrument. uh, You'll often see on instruments from the early to mid 19th century and uh the the one that i think of is is the the jb viome instruments that there's simply a black bar from side to side at the top of the seabout of the instrument um and it would have been lamp black and soot and uh you know the rosin from the instrument mixing with the fact are you talking about the the spot underneath the fingerboard yeah but just like across the whole top So uh, they were faking what was the place where the most rosin falls down into the greasy lamp oil that's in the air. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the tears of of the women who love the player and the spit of the player and the wine that flies around when you are a great violinist. And there's this big smudgy patch. And Mm -hmm. uh, colloquially, quaintly, uh, you know, I have colleagues that refer to it as the Viome mustache. And so you're, people you're that are talking about it. the place that I hate to clean. Oh, because, yeah. Because yeah. whenever I'm trying to get underneath the fingerboard, it tears up my fingers inevitably. Like uh, I'll like catch my fingers with the edge of the fingerboard. Ooh, that's yeah. my pet peeve. Yeah. I, I make my employees carve that off uh-huh. the very corner of the bottoms of the chisels mm-hmm. uh, of, of the, the fingerboard with the chisel. Um, I picked oh. that up from David Frederick in, in Lincoln. It makes everyone's life better. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that part. And it get, uh, got real dirty and it's okay. copied and then removed mm-hmm. by folks later on who are restoring the instrument. Um, mm-hmm. And now some of the people who are copying those instruments mm-hmm. actually do those steps mm-hmm. and then reverse them to ensure that their instrument looks as much as possible like the original. Okay. So to summarize for someone who's not super into this world, all the Months parts that are crazy stuff. all the parts that are hard to clean they're making it look like it didn't get cleaned over hundreds of years yeah got it okay dirty dirty black and deep <laughs> okay so they they that's that's a uh, antiquing in a nutshell everyone we can all go home now okay <laughs> the volers they get crafty mm-hmm. there's lots of 100 year old violins around now and a lot of them are falling apart they're not all like the great master ones that are worth investing lots of money in, but they've got a hundred years of wear. So they start using old parts. There's new pieces here and there and changes have to be made to make it fit a certain maker's style. Composites. But yeah. A hundred year old violin tends to look a hundred years old. Yeah. Now here's what went down at the Hart family company. They make a copy but they present it as a copy. 
in our show notes, I put a picture of a label of one of the heart instruments, which clearly says copy of. And I'm assuming for the heart company, this was commonplace. But we both know how mm -hmm. easy it is to remove and replace a label. <laughs> it, am I wrong in assuming that like this is the easiest thing you can do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and once you have a label out, you know, you m decide what sort of paper it was made on. You decide whether you're going to make a block to print it or set type to print it or mm -hmm. whether it was hand-drawn. And then you can get good enough paper and make multiple copies afterwards that are close to what the real deal looks like. Yeah. I mean, and nowadays we can just download a PDF and print it on the right paper because nobody's faking anything nowadays. You can, no, nobody, nobody. Really? You can, if you just do like a quick, like Google search of like, mm -hmm. like violin labels, you can get a whole page of like all the old makers and just, just print it. It's just go to town. <laughs> you just choose like the quality of paper you want to print it on mm -hmm. and you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it, yeah. Then it's worth a million dollars. Done. Mm -hmm. It's that easy. Everybody. But what about the Voller brothers? How did they get a million dollars, Rosie? I don't know Bounce. if they got rich or not. <laughs> yeah. I I just know I'm just talking about their reputation today. So mm -hmm. maybe they died paupers or maybe they were incredibly wealthy. I know that they're respected today. Is that worth money? Uh once you're dead? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. I mean the, the boys had hands. They had hands. <laughs> so the Hart Company sold a Strad copy to Balfour and Co. Mm -hmm. in 1901 for 45 pounds, which is not nothing. It's a lot it, of money. It's about 5,000 pounds in today's market. That would get you a horse and four. Mm. Exactly. Ben's probably that's come down on me for that sort of talk. <laughs> that's that was the math I was doing. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> The Balfour Company weaves together a story led by a supervillain named Vincent Cooper. Mm. They say, we found a previously unknown Strad, and it dates to 1692, and it's in magnificent condition. Only 1,000 pounds. Wow. Which is 116,000 pounds today. Wow. They go around to all the experts for certificates of authenticity. Could you tell me a little bit about the importance of certificates of authenticity? Yeah. Um, well, of course, it, when you come to a place where you're trying to sell something as what you're claiming it is, expertise is only worth as much as the man or woman the expertise is printed on. Um, and... Nowadays, we enjoy this wonderful thing called the internet and uh, shared resources and a much smaller world. Um, and than... Antiques Roadshow. Oh, of course. Uh, shout out Fred Oster. Fred Oster with the mustaches, my man. Um, wait, wait, wait. He, different he... mustache than what we were talking about earlier? Yes, yes. Fred, uh, Fred Oster's mustache is in the same place on his top, but huge and white. And it's not um, composed of dirt. 
well, no, no, he's a clean man and he's a, he's a lovely guy. Hi, Fred. Uh, <laughs> but you had in every burg and every town, and you still have this today, but it's understood that you go to the expert expert these days. In every burg and every town, you had somebody who worked on instruments who would write you a certificate saying, oh, this looks like that. It's worth this much. If you sell something, you do the same thing with the bill of sale. I certificate this as a violin by this maker. It's worth this much. And that is supposed to be representative of fair market value and what can be gotten when it's time to, to sell it again. Mm -hmm. um, problem is not only with people that can falsify instruments, but with people that could falsify those documents mm -hmm. or outright lie about what an instrument was because it's close enough to make them more money. Um, and it's as easy in a lot of, uh, you know, families of makers or schools of makers or when the master dies and the apprentice has married the master's daughter and takes over the shop. Uh, you would just keep putting your master's labels into your violins you're making in his method because mm -hmm. his are already worth twice what yours were. Why start from scratch? So, I mean, it's the I'll, same workshop. How different is it really? It can't be that different. <laughs> Oma bono. <laughs> a certificate can keep your money safe. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of the certificates that were made 30 to 50 years ago were done with all of the right energy and all the good intention. And the scholarship wasn't good enough for mm -hmm. what we know now. And there are times when somebody goes, oh, wait, this isn't that. It's this, which is worth much more. But okay. more often, somebody comes in with a good certificate from 1950, and you have to let them know it's really not going to get them what they were hoping. That's a shame. Yeah. I am very hesitant to, <laughs> to certify anything or, or give evaluation. To even but, give an opinion? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah there's... Well, here's what's so up, Rosie. If you say this is obviously not an Alessandro Galliano mm -hmm. to somebody and a big shop with deep pockets mm -hmm. somewhere else sold it as such, even if you're right, they can still sue you until you've spent a ton of money sticking up for yourself and you go under and bankrupt anyway. Oh, Being I'm never right, saying anything ever again. Yeah, yeah. Being right does not protect you from money. And uh, that's not something that's just in our business, but it's I mean, something that's, that... that's a life lesson today in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, 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 like, uh, we we're talking about the ballers. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. We, okay, okay, okay. So we're talking about authenticity. And so these guys, they've got this Strad, the, the Balfour Company. Balfour. They go to the Chanos to get their certificate. They well said. Go to, thank you. They go to the Bernadelles. Mm -hmm. They go to a handful of others. They do not go to the other experts in their backyard in London. They, the hearts. They don't, right? yeah, they don't go to the Hill and Sun shop that was a less than a mile away from the hearts. Oh. And they definitely, definitely do not get a certificate from the hearts. So... This violin, when it's like released for auction, it is the stuff of news all over London that this new Strat has been discovered. And it doesn't sell for that thousand pounds. It sells for 2,500 pounds. 
Shut the front door. I can't. And then a letter comes to Balfour and Co. This anonymous letter, nobody has signed it. We know it's just a clever fake. Signed, someone who knows who made it. Ooh. I'm not sure what the thinking of Balfour was, but they they published this letter and then repudiated it. So I don't know if there was a way they couldn't ignore it or they wanted to if get ahead of the story. It wasn't an open letter. It wasn't published commensurate with it being sent to them. The it, Balfours published it? It was sent to them and the Balfours published it. Well, I got to say, even if it got proved as fake mm-hmm. after all of this, it's going to hold some incredible value because of the reality TV press they're getting. <laughs> yeah, and re- reality TV is as good as truth, right? Yeah, and it, mm-hmm. it, it existed then. <laughs> well, when the truth comes out, it's not like immediately the next day, but eventually Balfour goes bankrupt. And they're not around. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Because of this? Uh, I. That's a good question. <laughs> Directly? <laughs> it sorry, wasn't a sorry, next day thing, matter. but it was, it was a part of their downfall. It was like three days later. Yeah. So okay, who good. wrote that letter? Uh, do I, <laughs> should I guess? Yeah, you can guess. I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I want to know. I mean, it's it is anonymous. Ah. Yeah. Uh, was it one of those brothers that wanted because they're the ones who made the instrument? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or was it you know some third party trying to out Balfour and try to uh, tarnish their name? Mm-hmm. Who was it? <laughs> I don't know, Rosie, okay. but I am intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's anonymous to this day. There's definitely. I think it was the Vala brothers. There there's speculation in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is one of our stories of how a fake can get built up, even in the eyes of people who should know better. It's mm-hmm. not it's not just you, dad, whose kid is in orchestra, and you don't understand why you're spending money on this instrument. It's it's everywhere. It's at the highest levels. Uh, there are more stories to come. And to bring this back to the mm-hmm. modern day, I have seen an instrument that was a commercial instrument. So an instrument in the white. And we mm-hmm. say that uh, it comes in with the woodwork done mm-hmm. and no varnish that I opened up in a former life, in a former shop, mm-hmm. and redid the graduations and base bar. And when and, you uh, when you redo graduations and base bar, that uh-huh. means what? I change the overly thick nature of the plates mm-hmm. on a commercial instrument that is intended for a commercial line by carving wood away mm-hmm. until I'm pleased with how they're working in concert with each other. Mm-hmm. Then I install a base bar, which stiffens the top and ensures a balanced, powerful sound. Then paint the thing, put varnish on it, and set it up. And I saw an instrument of mine, which I didn't do the woodwork on, but which I had refinished, with a label that had nothing to do with the label I put in it at that shop being sold for eight times what that commercial line of instruments cost. Um, Mm. And I was giddy and I wanted to point at it 
and have a secret. And I didn't even write a little note. You know, I just oh. I just let it go. So you are itching to be the person who writes that open letter. Yeah. And so but but you you would not incriminate yourself because you don't want to risk you getting in trouble. Well, I didn't do anything, but I do not want lawsuits exactly. landing on my shiny loafers. So yeah. I just giggled and then told a bunch of people, you know, quietly, <laughs> quietly. Off the record. Off the record. This is off the record, right? We're not recording? Yeah, we're recording. This is ah, going to good. everyone. As long as we're not recording, that's good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> so you, you got a violin that... Uh, you know, when they're in the white, is it safe to assume that they they were made in China? Or mm -hmm. okay, so we, we got mean, a, a instrument shipped overseas. Romanian, German. Okay. It's, it's possible. It's been from. This was a okay. Chinese instrument. It was. And it was part. It was of made, a run of instruments. It was that made were being by made cheap labor. Uh huh. And it comes to your hands. You make it sound real pretty. You put really mm -hmm. pretty varnish on it, and then some label ends, ends up inside of it. Yeah. Okay. Claiming it's something else okay. that is that has a market value greater than the commercial line of instruments I was building for. Nice. Okay. And you you'll you'll see it if you haven't already. Um, when the uh, Jay Haida instruments, which are excellent for the cost, started coming out of uh, Jay Ifshin's shop mm -hmm. in El Cerrito, California. Uh, I was working for Peter Preer and he got some sample examples and we set them up and we're impressed. Mm. And over the course of the next year, we saw two or three with those Jay Haida stamps obliterated and then in a, a modern Italian label in there. And the people who were playing them had paid, uh, again, uh, you know, between five and ten times mm. what that instrument was worth. So people are still out there getting what they can over on people who aren't educated. You mean we haven't completely gotten rid of snake oil salesmen? They're still around? Yeah, what? I'm sorry. Sorry to let you down, Rosie. This episode is brought to you by International Violin. For 86 years, International Violin has been supplying violin makers and violin shops with specialty supplies. When you call, you get Lori, Kenny, or Danny on the phone, and they're there to help you with whatever you need. Everything you need to build a violin from scratch, from tone wood to tools to varnish. They've even got instructional books and DVDs in case violin making was something you always wanted to try but didn't know how to start. If you're listening, give them the promo code OMO, O-M-O, at checkout or on the phone, and you'll get $5 off your next order. You can reach them at internationalviolin.com or call them at 1-800-542-3538. That's internationalviolin.com or 1-800-542-3538. Don't forget that OMO promo at checkout for $5 off your order. Thanks for listening. Ciao. Ciao. Okay, can you answer that? Hello. 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 Hi, uh, Herbert. Yeah. Hello, hello from London. Hello. Welcome. I'm I'm glad you're here. So Ben Hebert works in London, England. Um he is considered somewhat of a serious muckety muck in this wonderful business of ours. Um I happen to know that he's a nice guy and if you 
have questions about authenticity or about the history of instruments or about makers that um, he's one of the people I most enjoy seeing interact with others about instruments and uh, their their history um, online. We've started talking on the phone here and there, Ben. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing this? Oh, gosh. Trained as a maker about 20 years ago and realized I was better at make, uh, looking at instruments and making them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was at the, the, forgive me if I get it wrong, the West St. Dean's program? No, I taught there for a couple of years. And okay. uh, I trained uh, in London at what was London College of Furniture. Excellent. So, so you realized you have expert eyes. Yeah, I just found, you know, an old instrument would come into the workshop and a lot of my colleagues would sort of just look at it and think, oh, you know, see the faults in it and say, well, I can do better than that or why is it worth this, this kind of money? Yeah. And it, just came, it just became clear to me that I could see what differences were. I didn't know what they meant. But, okay, so they were asking questions about... Uh, making it better what kind of questions were you asking in your head why is it different and why is this instrument supposedly worth a fortune Mm -hmm. when it doesn't look like the kind of things that we're supposed to be learning to make one Uh, of the things you've said that really stuck with me was to watch for the bones of the instrument to stop looking for the the flash and and maybe the the pasties that they've put over the 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 form of it and look instead for what tool finished the throat of the scroll and what tool finished the the work at the miters of the of the ribs and I've, I've drawn a lot from that thank you for that oh that's a pleasure yeah there's there's certain sort of ingrained things which just always happen so and one of the one of the big things is that yeah how how do you cut a peg box in order to where the peg box meets the scroll it's mm. it's actually something that most violin makers they either copy what they've been told to copy, so it all ends up like a strad, or it, or it ends up differently. And it's it's those almost invisible things that you wouldn't bother to, you know, you almost wouldn't consider to, to to think of even in a sort of making thing. But it's it evolves into the way that you've always done it, mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, if if you see something that looks like a, a Milanese violin, but the throat of the scroll is is perfect Stradivari. It's not Milanese, even if yeah. everything else absolutely mm-hmm. stacks up right. It's just one of those little things which is going to just, yeah, it that'll start the exercise of finding out why everything else isn't Milanese either. And then and for that, those of you that don't make instruments, uh, the difference would be taking a finely sharpened bridge knife in underneath the head of the scroll and cleaning it out, or taking a big old rip saw and finishing it with a stroke up to where the, the head meets the peg box. Exactly. So actually the action of, of making it one way or another is just prof- profoundly different, but you're talking about a couple of millimeters of, of tininess. Mm-hmm. So we've got some questions for you, Ben. I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, I think I'm actually just putting check marks besides questions that you guys are just already answering. That we're railroading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no. You're just you're just leading it already. It's awesome. Um, bye, bye, Ray. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we talked in the first half of this episode about the Voller brothers and 
been one of my first interactions with you. You just sent me a video of basically a, a drive-by. Oh, here's the Voller House in, in London. <laughs> so I think you've got a little bit of experience with these instruments. Yeah, I've actually found one in a local charity shop because I live just down the road from where they no uh, are. Wow. Was nice. uh, <laughs> uh, that was a great day. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're about 100 yards from where I've got my studio at the moment. So it's, uh, it's sort of there's a bit of, of their spirit which is knocking around. Uh, so just by the theory of how far they could have thrown a violin, you're going to see them more often than, than we are over here. Well, so. I think I think that was pure luck, but it was yeah. poetic luck. So that, that was quite nice. I uh, haven't found any others. But, uh, yeah, we also seem to get the most number of stolen violins in London in the local pawn shop across the road. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, there's uh, yeah, there might be a good reason why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they the, the volas there's so much mystery about them and and so much mythology and and they're actually the backbone of i think because we look at them so much and and we try to consider not not just how good they were as fakers but start to think about why they why they did what they did that yeah actually sort of getting under the skin of of an awful lot of forgeries you know having having a respect for what they did understanding what motivated them to make an instrument in a certain way actually you know it begins to open up a whole box on yeah you know, every kind of slightly dodgy instrument in the trade hmm. which is special i've found when seeing them and <clears throat> excuse me i don't have uh, nearly the experience you do with these things but the only place i can kind of catch oh okay i i see the hand of of these guys is in the the very outer bits of the volute of the scroll. It's as if the same hand there finally asserts itself as you go up into the comma, into the eye of the scroll, uh, regardless of the, the model that they were making. That's a really that that's a really good thing. Uh, don't I mean one of the big things about the volas is as soon as you start to assert a rule, you'll find, you know, then then you'll be off track because yeah, <laughs> don't believe yeah. myself too much. <laughs> but there are there are a huge number of Voller Brothers instruments which have this sort of slightly clunky. Yeah, you know, it's sort of you know it's a Stradivari scroll, but it's on a Tononi viola or a Testori or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but a little bit I... clunky. And actually, look at the look at the work that the French people were making in Miracor at the time. And this is this is just a disappointing day in in France to, yeah. make, to make that scroll. And I think I, I think there's a reason for it. Sorry, you're going to say. I was just going to ask for clarification. Uh, it sounds like both you, Ben, and you, Chris, are talking about that same area uh, inside the peg box for looking for identification markers. No, is that on the, on the carving of the, what we would maybe call the ears of the scroll in the States. So the volume, the little points that stick out yeah. at, the, yeah. at the, at the ending of the turn of the scroll. Okay. So, so the volute is the, the scrolls flat surfaces as they travel towards the pinnacle of their path where the, the, the ear is. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. You just get boring scrolls on so many volas, which were otherwise could be quite clever. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's a there's another guy who we confuse with the volas a lot, Wilm Hudson. And 
with his it's actually really interesting because because where the volume's where the where the scroll is widest he actually carves the scrolls a little bit too wide mm. and then files down about two millimeters on either side to get it back in once the scroll is done and that means that as you get out of the center of the scroll it comes out as a big wide comma huh. and leaves a, a flat space there for the comma to live in exactly this great flat space and the thing is if i pick up a violin if you imagine i'm in a shop in the 1930s when he's working and someone comes in with an interesting looking violin and i want to know what it is i take it out of the case the first thing i see with my eye is the scroll and I see these flat surfaces, and that's his little etiquette to me to say, don't get too excited about this violin because I made it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and no one's going to know that apart from the people in, you know, in the shops which he's involved in. And otherwise, someone else could take it as a fake or whatever. So he was, he was winking. He was uh, tipping his hat to the cats in town that... Uh, that he didn't want to to get caught up in it. Exactly. I love that. That's an excellent point. In my readings, I kept coming across people who were copyist building in some small way to give a nod to basically people who do what you do, Ben, to say, I, this isn't the exact one. I, I'm doing a small forgery and people like you should know better. Exactly. Does that resonate with you? It totally does. I mean, I say this as a nod to someone who knows, but it also should be <laughs> a caution to somebody who doesn't know because that's a really big thing that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you see the one thing that's wrong, like we said about the throat, start to see what else is wrong and there you go. I mean, well, it unravels. Wilm Hudson made lots of test story copies and uh, he, he, you don't get pins on a test story, but you get pins on a, on a Wilm Hudson test story copy. Wonderful. Because in court, you know, that's what you could say. Well, you know, well, your honor, any, everyone knows that a genuine test story is, doesn't have pins. So <laughs> QED, this can't be. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, enough knowledge to do that. Sometimes one of the, one of the most amazing visual effects, which the volas do when they're free-forming instruments, is you'll have something which, you know, maybe is a bit like a Guadagnini. One sound hole will be slightly off the other, but one of them's a Strad. One of them maybe, maybe is a Del Jesu. I'm... So the F holes they're modeling off of so, two totally different makers. Exactly. So you look left and you see something northern Italian. You look right, you see something northern Italian. You look at the hole and you see something northern Italian. <laughs> <laughs> you never well, have. and that was quad all over the place too. I mean, if if the top plate's wider than the back, then they've hit the style by making it from six cities. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, there's uh, I mean, there's one fake maker called Palantir and it's always sort of Palantir will be a an alumnus of Galliano working in Milan or something like that and and it's even on, on the label it gives you the the map of of where to you know where to go to find out where all the influences come from interesting now when you mentioned pins uh, and this is again to folks that uh, maybe don't do this as often as we do um, in the traditional Cremonese method either 
halfway through the purfling, the inlay around the outside, or below the purfling, there's often a dot of darker wood, its end grain. And that was a pin which would help locate the plate onto the blocks and ribs during construction and assembly so that when you come to put it back together, uh, it all goes together as planned. Um, but outside of the Cremonese method in Brescia and beyond in, in places like, like Milan and Naples, um, they hadn't learned to build them that way. So either they went in as I use them as simply a nod to my training thoughtlessly, or if they went in because that person was copying something like uh, the test stories from Milan, um, but they were using their training, which included pins, then that's the bones of the instrument like, like Ben's talking to, where, where you, you kind of go backwards through the, the details and being stunned by the varnish until you can make decisions about whether it could possibly be real or not. Exactly. And it's so easy to make an instrument into a Cremonese or an interesting Italian instrument by just getting your drill out 200 years later, <laughs> whacking, a, whacking a couple of cocktail sticks in there. Exactly. <laughs> it's a bamboo skewer, a little bit of dirt and some super glue. You're done. Exactly. And that's where you know, ultraviolet light is brilliant because, you know, take it, you know, take it when i worked at christie's we used to use the ladies toilet in the uh, basement <laughs> because that was the only place which was truly dark and there were some interesting <laughs> things that happened when myself and kerry Keane were found in there <laughs> together <laughs> with the lights uh, off with bright white light i need, to, light. <laughs> I need yeah. to butt in for uh for the western ears when you say toilet we imagine a little literal toilet <laughs> no, no, no 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 that's that <laughs> you're referring to the whole room <laughs> <laughs> pretty much <laughs> just that with a sort of a, a stradivari and uh in the toilet violet light it was uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness it went for some giggles but no any kind of playing around with that and uh yeah, likely is not, you're going to be able to see through the varnish that it's a different varnish covering it. And different varnish materials and how they're worn away will fluoresce under strong UV in ways that are distinctive. Yeah, exactly. So so there's a, a huge amount of reading of an instrument. I mean, if, if you're not a violin maker, if you're not a violin restorer, you don't want to look at your violin under ultraviolet because... Oh it'll kind of look like it's been lying in a pigeon coop for a few yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's not nice but that i that, clean tears and snot off of instruments more often than i'd like in my life and you really see how much you do that under ultraviolet it's not <laughs> chris what have you done to your clients i mean i i look at them and i go uh don't quit your day job <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, Ben, part of your job is is giving bad news to clients. Can you walk us through a little bit of, of how you handle that delicately, or if you do? Gosh, it's really difficult. And the hardest bit, I mean, when I was working for Christie's, you got so many people who were coming and you, you thought, well, you've sent an email from the other side of the world to the most prestigious auction house on the planet. Or, yeah, we like to think we were. And you are trying to tell us that 
your violin is a Stradivari and we just sold a last Stradivari for goodness knows how many million. And it's worth really not very much. Yeah. And often, you know, you get a sort of a mediocre one and it's like, you know, I'm really sorry to tell you that, you know, it's only worth $2,000. And then you get a response back of incredulity because they didn't know that a violin could actually be worth as much as $2,000. <laughs> so you prepare yourself to destroy this person's world and then they're like, oh, great. Absolutely. And it's like, well, payday, whatever. <laughs> so it's, it's just, you cannot, you, you, there is no way of really knowing what somebody's, uh, what, what you know what what baggage is coming with with some kind with one particular instrument or another uh what their expectations are yeah no and the scariest one i got an oligarch from russia who was probably on the wrong side of the law yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and i kind of had to do the discussion that if his great-grandfather was the founder of the imperial band of the ukraine back in 1870 and was, as he said, allowed to buy the finest instruments possible by the Tsar of Russia. It was probably a brass band. (laughs) (laughs) But he had this old violin with a Stradivari label in it. (laughs) And you were worried that some dude was going to show up knocking on the door if you didn't handle this conversation right. Chris, can you back off your mic a little bit? (laughs) Okay, sorry. Go ahead. He sent two heavies in a private jet to London to show this thing to me. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, thank God I was was working for a major auction house because we got the lawyers to sit in the room because uh, it was was worthless. It was not worth £20, certainly not worth the jet fuel to get it to London. Oh, wow. That's scary. And, uh, so yeah, it's it's a movable feast, but but a lot of the time, the reason why people feel that the violin is important is because it's been in their family for generations, mm-hmm. and and actually that's a really important thing in its own right. So if you can, you know, there's no such thing as a German factory fiddle from the 1870s. What there is is a fiddle made in a German factory in the 1870s, which was bought by Sears Roebuck, mm-hmm. which was then, you know, a Stradivari violin and bow in case, which is sold in, mm-hmm. in America wherever they were, mail order for $5.99. Yeah. I, I played as a child on my grandfather's uh, Heberline that he sent away f- to the Sears catalog from California for $12 for, and it was. Yeah. A cracking good violin at that price, you know. And it's a it's a huge amount of history. And you know, for something like that, you know, if 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 you've got a violin in your family since the eighteen seventies in America, that is that is real family history. It's about the first generations that were over. So do you lead with that? Do you lead with the different types of quality and value and talk to them about uh sentimental value? You've- You've got to, you can't be too, you can't get them sentimental if you want to buy it. <laughs> uh, pardon me, Chris, maybe turn down your game. I turned my you're, game you're... down already, I swear. Okay. I'm sorry. I, 
Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, can I turn my volume down? Does that does that change it? La 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 la. That's that's better. Okay. Yes, thank you. Am I just deafening <laughs> you guys? I'm sorry. Uh, you're just blowing out a little bit. Uh, and sorry. Back to the matter. Uh, yes, I've heard the phrase a lot. That uh, I've heard the phrase sentimental value. Yeah. Um, that's and one it, you guys tend to to use when it doesn't have maybe a lot of monetary value. Exactly. When you want to sort of get it as far away from the shop as possible without. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I used to work in the pastry stamp department in a big auction company years ago and uh and really? just yeah and it was it was really in well you did these sort of antiques roadshow kind of things and you kind of learned that you had a big queue of people and you had someone with their great grandfather's stamp collection and if which you did not want i mean it was worthless but mm-hmm. if you could go through the you know if if you could find why it was sentimental and valuable and important you know, when it got to the to the point of valuing it, they weren't interested in the value because it was priceless to them, uh-huh. and they, and they'd walk away, you know, happy and you know, actually sort of feeling that they knew something now about the childhood of their grandfather that they never knew. And oh, that that's was, lovely. It was it was lovely, and you know, genuinely, it was you know almost one of the warmest things of the whole of 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 doing what I was doing. But the person behind them in the queue might have an investment portfolio from the 1980s and their emotion was dependent on how the person in front of them was dealt with and of course if they came upset because they'd come along to this roadshow and thought that their thing was was incredibly valuable and it was worthless then you know you'd have an unsuccessful day because you wouldn't be able to you know, that that would lead into the way that you dealt with the other person. Yeah. And not not doing value, you know, doing it by emails. You know, you just realize that you know, if I just turn around to people and say, no sale value, not interested, and I keep on doing that for the sort of 10 or 20 valuation emails that I get over a period of time, then I become, you know, emotionally uninvested in it as well. And that's when you make the mistake and you, don't look at things as hard as you should do. Oh, that's interesting. So it's it's not just it's not just about being, you know, being client facing, but it's actually understanding that the third person who's brought you something worthless to see, <laughs> you know, they came in with a with a huge investment, and if you then assume that the fourth person is just going to be as useless to you as they were. So you have to be a therapist for them and for yourself to do well. For yourself. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you're just beating your head against a wall. And, and, you know, what a pity. People keep things in their family for 100 years for a really good reason. <clears throat> it's just not one that you can express in a financial, in a financial yeah. sense. Yeah. I always offer to, for a nominal fee, as that goes in a violin shop, get some used strings and a used bridge onto something and make it so that it can be placed hopefully without screws into a shadow box. If it's completely unfixable for anything near its value, you know, if that, if that equation just isn't going to work out, um, that the, the sentimentality and its resale value aren't going to even out. Um, 
for 75 or 100 bucks um polish it up get a used set of setup on it and make it so they can display it and keep that value as something uh that they can pass on to their kids yeah i mean we forget how much i mean you see it in england all the time you'll open up a 19th century or 18th century violin that's in a bit of bad repair and you'll see on the bottom on on the bottom bout of it yeah often yeah even a millimeter two millimeters worth of just settled soot and it's because and it's because well there's two things we used to use this coil which was really oily so the soot has its own particular you know it's really sort of this spongy stuff it's almost like it almost feels like walking through snow when you stick your finger in it oh wow Um, foggy london town i've heard about this stuff but (laughs) the fact that it sits it, it sits on the bottom it sits sort of on the shoulders of of the sea bounce from you know, from within is because these violins just hung on people's walls mm. and yeah right up until you know it was just the done thing for some reason we don't hang violins on walls anymore you'll never see it <laughs> but you get the impression from the violins i've seen open that significant numbers of people did that in the past mm. wow wow so why not do it today yeah. Well, I'm I'm loving all this. I'm loving that you guys try to approach each customer with sensitivity and some love even if the the value of the instrument isn't there. Um Ben, is there anything in your field that uh you see as a problem that you you wish could change for the better? In authenticating, Rosie? <laughs> or just generally? <laughs> Generally, it's the bow ties. The bow ties are a problem. <laughs> bow ties are, I mean, I don't know. Violin dealers who smoke cigars <laughs> and have nice socks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's not listening. <laughs> Hi, Chris. <laughs> That'll be it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's still very much of a rogues game. That's one of, that's one uh-huh. of the issues. I mean, that, what I said is, you know, you, right at the beginning of this is that you start to open the book on the volors and you actually, because they're there to be studied, they're there to be learned. And uh, and you begin to see what everything else is. I mean, in honesty, it's it's easier for a forger rather than to, you know, if you make a perfect copy of a Stradivari, that's a hell of a lot of work. If, mm. you, if you find an instrument which looks like it was made by a follower of a particularly famous mid-19th century maker... And you whip the label out, you're halfway towards it being accepted as the thing that it's not. And, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, we we see Deganis in the states here all the time, which ostensibly are worth seventy thousand dollars, and yeah. it was. It's a lot easier to take a half terrible fiddle and slap a Degani label in it and get paid than it would ever be to pass something off from from the true halls of you know, the Cremonese or, or other Italian greats. Well, there's one or two makers in France. I won't say who. Uh, back in, <laughs> back Why in not? The, because I don't want people to buy and take this as an instruction manual. But, <laughs> but when you see genuine examples, they've got that slightly quirky fluting around the volutes. They've yeah. got, you've, got, you've got that slightly sort of 
thin and uh, you know quite bold edge work which has sort of got that sort of sharp ridge around it and mm-hmm. and into the wings of the f holes as well and yeah exactly and you look at these things and you you think well this this person must have been you know this this person must have been trained by Dagani because of all yeah all of these things which yeah the top experts you know think are is are really quirky and really unique to Dagani but then they're not looking at the f- the lower end stuff which you know you've got to go out to provincial france to see mm-hmm. and uh and you just realize that you know one or you know one or two little tricks and that french violin's going to become a dagani and uh, mm. yes yeah, suddenly i'm i'm not fighting yeah. to get 12 to 14000 for my fiddle anymore right <laughs> yeah and you know even if you put it in auction as uh as a you know probably by dagani attributed to dagani someone's going to make a punt and instead of struggling to sell that violin for six thousand pounds you might get twelve thousand in auction for someone that's what you mean when you say that this is still the land of rogues i i misquoted you a bit yeah no very much it's uh you never quite know what's happening go ahead you never quite know what's happening and you know just just labels swapping yeah a lot of a lot of makers make to a variety of ranges so when you see an inferior thing selling for the top price uh-huh. it's that sort of there's a there's a lack of understanding i mean i had two matthew hardy violins in the workshop and one of them i was asking 35000 pounds for when you see it you'd know why mm-hmm and the other one made by the same maker within two years from that, I was asking, both in perfect condition, I was asking 8000 for. Oh, wow. And you'd see why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And as a maker, I've, I've had those fluctuations in my life, and those things don't really become addressable until after the maker's dead. It's a, it's a matter well, of us biting our lips when we see something that isn't a great example if the maker's still alive you can't cut the price in half without having uncomfortable conversations well not not necessarily because i mean in this case there weren't german factory instruments coming into edinburgh Mm. so this is clearly a maker who spent you know a couple of months maybe with some mates knocking out five or six violins that they could just get cash for and then might spend two months in the summer making one instrument for a special commission. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's the same thing. You, t- you take contemporary instruments and yeah, things that people are making right now. And yeah, some of the people who do the finest antiquing will take twice as long to get the varnish and the wear done as it does for them to make one, to, to, to basically make that violin. Oh, God, yes. Wow. I talk to people whose antiquing I really admire, and it's like, well, where do you start? I go, nine months of UV. It's like, what? How did, don't you have bills? Come on. So this is the, the, you know, when, when, you know, the people I've spoken to and their, their pastiche instrument is half the price of their masterpiece instrument. Hmm. You kind of look at it and say, "Well, the masterpiece is too cheap if that's what you're charging." Yeah. But uh, but no, I think there's a lot of there's a you know 
even today we actually for, for modern makers actually we need to engage more in discussion that you can make an instrument for a, for a, for for one price and you can make an instrument for another price oh but i would you, love that i i think perhaps there's in having worked a bit in europe for other makers there's more flexibility and understanding of things like that on the continent than there is in in the states um there's a very cowboy feeling that uh you know, I'm the only one who made this instrument and my price is set and that's my price mm-hmm. in, in the States. And uh, it's something that's hammered in, was hammered into my head as a student mm-hmm. that uh, you don't want to muddy the water by ever asking anything different, by daring to lower your price if you are your family's in need and you need to get money and food on the table because that will make you unreliable to dealers and then the dealers will refuse to touch your stuff. But I know for a fact some of the makers um, whose work I really admire that are living and European will have a favorite instrument of theirs and ask a lot more for it. And yeah. at, at looking at it as a, at a, as a meritocracy, um, it makes perfect sense, as you were saying, with those two instruments from the same maker. Exactly. I mean, I think if, if you're clear on your strategy of pricing, then there's nothing wrong in having you know one thing which is one look, look at a restaurant menu and you've got your cheap wine your your average price wine and and your super expensive wine and uh and yeah, in a, in a, a that. when i'm purchasing instruments from a company and they offer different lines they've got their student model and they've got their intermediate model exactly. and yeah they've got their their prodigies <laughs> yeah, yeah master art yeah. I'm going to start calling my instruments I don't like my pastiche instrument. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably. Uh, I do. <laughs> Go ahead. It's, that's probably a word. One, the person I'm thinking of will know exactly who I'm talking about. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you've got to, you know, that's, that's what he calls them uh, for himself. But mm. I would use that as a marketing term. It's too. It's too pejorative. Uh, Deal. <laughs> it's it's sort of fair when you see what the masterpiece is like, but you know, yeah. the, they're still better instruments than than most that you're likely to see. So, uh, so I I've got a totally left field question for you. Left field. Really, that that's tr- a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> that trip you took to Cremona uh, some months back. What yeah. was your thought about seeing that graffiti on the Del Gesu home? Graffito. It's, it's yeah. singular. Graffito. No, it's definitely graffiti. There's a hell of a lot of it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, no, you posted. Oh, that's great. Yeah, something about no to fascism and no to sexism and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, it was just, we are with, and what I particularly liked was there was a, an anarchist sign and actually you look at it because that's an an a in a circle and strad's tag was an a and an s with a cross in a circle yes perfect and And this was on the one-time house of guaneri del jesu yeah and we know for a fact that guaneri del jesu didn't know how to draw a circle so it was kind of (laughs) burn yeah exactly (laughs) 
Ben, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I always appreciate my interactions with you. I'm, I'm so glad you're around in the business and that you're so approachable. Thank you. Yes, 100%. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Guys, we have Jerry Lynn joining us. Hi, Jerry. Hello, Rosie. Christopher, how are you guys? We're doing lovely. I, I mean, well, I can't speak for Chris. I'm feeling great. That's good. I'm in a closet and feeling great. Mm-hmm. So wow. we uh, we asked you to join us because for our coda, which is our little bizarre bit at the end that we just can't walk away from, we just have to be a little kooky. And and you know what? If you're here for straight lace stuff, this is a great time to just just turn it off. Just just, turn just it stop. Off. It's going to get weird. <laughs> so for our coda, we have today Luthier Dad Jokes presented by Chris. Oh, wait. Yes. Yeah, yeah we do. Okay. We do. Are you ready for this? <sighs> I'm, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to be ready for this, but it's. I guess we're going to do this. So go okay. ahead. Well, our, I was born ready. Okay. Well, our job, Jerry, you and I, we are going to rate his jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, um, well, let's see, zero points for um, that's the most inappropriate thing I've ever heard. Uh, See, but Jerry's going to do that every time I talk. (laughs) And then five points would be, I'm repeating this in its entirety to my mother. (laughs) Wait, so this scale is based upon how PG I keep it? (laughs) That is kind of unfair, but... I know. I, I, I know. Think we should probably try to err on the side of uh, the appropriateness for Rosie's mother. Yeah, but but we can I actually think she's a lovely woman. we can add a little bit in for just originality, flair. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that rating, w- that scale, would be the best way to keep Chris in line. Okay. Well, let's do this okay. then. <laughs> Things your mother might hear from the back of the Caraway Strings workshop and not think it was dirty. Entendres? Hmm? Okay, okay. Oh no, I got too much oil on my tailpiece. Wait, he's done? Is that it? Yeah, that's all. Well, that's, I, that's, that's it. Okay. That's Double good. entendre? I don't, I don't know. Hmm. I, I think if if your mind is is prepared to go that place, then it's then it's funny. Um, otherwise, it's just a comment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you guys want me to yeah. to turn the heat yeah, up on this? Move, move to the next okay. one. I'm I'm put I'm yeah. getting it like um, right in the middle, like a three. Okay. Yeah. Um. Uh. What do the last strat I worked on? And uh, your grandma, Jerry Lynn, have in common? Uh, you only banged the Strad's head against the light twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I give you, I give you a four out of five for that, Jerry. Well done. Wait, wait, we're giving the ratings. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, no, he finished that joke like a pro. Uh, Jerry, I, I that's totally inappropriate, and I love it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Something, something, something. Soccer player, violinist. 
I wish your cleats weren't stuck in my F-hole. Mm. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Wow. Um I think go ahead, Jerry. It's just not that good. You you got to work on the the craft of like you're just filling in the first half of the joke. You Remember needs- how hard I laughed at your punchline, Jerry Lynn? Yeah. It needs a little more color to sustain the joke to to get to that okay. punchline. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to pull out the big guns. Uh, for those of you that work with Ava Parazzi's and Obligato Strings, oh, no. do you ever find yourself... Oh, yes, Rosie. We're losing our funding. <laughs> you ever find yourself mixing up the strings when you're putting them on? Okay. Do you ever find yourself wishing there was a dirty country song to help you keep them straight? Oh, no. No, not at all. Well, I'm here for both of you, and it goes a little something like this. Just remember, baby, what you learn between the sheets. The G string is brown, and pink is the D. Okay, stop, stop, stop 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 it, stop it. No. I'm out of five. No, um, no. Oh, you're done. Yeah, you're, you're finished. So I, I think oh, in, I'm horrified. In in, in, in my experience, <laughs> the, the the best double entendres uh, that I have come across are. Oh, I just said entendre. I didn't say double. What you we got to double them up. It helps. Anyway, are the ones that you don't necessarily think are going to be bad, but somebody else takes it the wrong way. Like uh, my wife, every time I use the word reamer, she snickers. Or. Okay. I hardly know her. Or yeah, F-hole. Okay. Or, mm-hmm. you know, one time I was taking a nut off to dress a fingerboard and it broke. And she said, so you busted your nut? And I'm like, I, I like what, your are, wife. what are you, 14? And uh, so those... Your wife is 14? That is unacceptable. Christopher, dial yeah. it back. Okay. Okay. Fair. So I think those are the... the best sort of entendres, the ones that are um, unintentional. So many people are gonna hear my song and not mix their strings up. Okay, bud? Okay. Unless you edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite thing about Jerry right now is that he can take uh, dirty jokes and turn it into something philosophical. It's a talent. It's great. <laughs> I'm annoyed that you guys uh, didn't like any of the things I said. Yeah. He just kind of tried too hard. (laughs) Tried too hard? I didn't have any warning. (laughs) Just started in on him. Well, okay. That's our coda today. Um, Thank you, everybody who listened. I really um, thank you for following through to the end. (laughs) And thanks to me for being funnier than Jerry Lynn. (laughs) That's up for debate. There'll be a whole <laughs> MaestroNet thread devoted to this. Don't worry. Love, Love you, buddy. Too, man. All right. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Good night, Good night Rosie. Bye. More information about Benjamin Hebert can be found at Hebert's.com. We are grateful for all of our listeners. Because of the positive response we've received, we'll be able to start listener feedback episodes in between our traditional episodes. We'd love to hear from even more of you. Email us your thoughts and questions at mail at omopod.com. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram, or call the Omophone to leave us a message at 
240-686-5345. Invoke Sound plays our theme music. Hey there. For those of you still listening, just a friendly reminder. Next time you dress a fingerboard and you go to glue the nut back on, please use just one drop of glue, or I will find you.